Welcome to Skim This. This week, commuters in New York City saw their worst nightmare come to life. The scene of a horrific attack inside a New York City subway during rush hour. The gunman suddenly putting on a gas mask, unleashing a smoke canister, and began firing. We'll break down what happened. We've also got the context on the week's other big headlines. From Elon Musk trying to buy Twitter, to new body cam footage that's reigniting conversations about police brutality. And we're also talking to an expert about what the latest inflation numbers mean for you. And finally, we'll wrap things up by going back in time to the 2000s, when your Saturday was spent hitting the mall and checking out the Abercrombie store. But it turns out there were some dark secrets in those seriously dark storefronts. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. This morning, people in New York City got on the subway for their morning commute, knowing the man accused of opening fire on a train earlier this week was in custody. During Tuesday's morning rush hour in Brooklyn, a gunman shot a handgun 33 times into a subway car, wounding 10 people. 13 others suffered injuries, including smoke inhalation from a smoke bomb that was set off. The Brooklyn station was in Sunset Park, a diverse neighborhood with a large immigrant and working-class population. It took law enforcement more than a day to locate the suspect, Frank James, who was found wandering the streets of the East Village. The manhunt was complicated by the fact that the cameras in the Brooklyn subway station weren't working properly during the attack. James, a 62-year-old Black man, had previously put out social media videos decrying racism and mental health treatment in NYC, and specifically called out the city's mayor, Eric Adams, for his policies. Now, James faces terrorism charges and life in prison. Commuters were already concerned about safety on public transit before Tuesday's attacks. Last year, more than 400 felony assaults were reported on the subway. And earlier this year, a 40-year-old woman was pushed in front of an oncoming train. New York has tried to crack down on crime on the subway by putting more police in stations and planning to add platform barriers. But those efforts didn't stop a mass shooting. We'll also point out it's not just New Yorkers who are on edge. Gun violence is on the rise across the country. There have been over 130 mass shootings in 2022 alone. That's an average of over one per day. And at least 12 major U.S. cities set new homicide records last year, including Philadelphia and Portland. On a national level, we can't exactly rely on Congress for help here, considering it hasn't passed any major gun control legislation in nearly two decades. So while Tuesday's attack was certainly a wake-up call, it's still unclear how New York and other major cities are going to think about public safety going forward. Let's get to some other headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up... Now to the investigation into a deadly police shooting in Michigan. Here's what we know. On April 4th, Patrick Leoya, a 26-year-old Black man, was stopped in Grand Rapids, Michigan. 
During the traffic stop, an officer asked Leoya to get back in the car. After questioning whether Leoya had a driver's license, the officer grabbed him and Leoya ran away. At one point, the officer tackled Leoya to the ground, repeatedly asking him to let go of his taser. Then, the officer shot Leoya in the head, killing him. After the police video was released this week, people have responded with outrage. The Black community in Grand Rapids has a history of tensions with police. And on a national scale, even with the continued conversations around the Black Lives Matter movement, it doesn't look like the rate of police killings has dropped. Last year, Black Americans accounted for 27% of those killed by police, although they are 13% of the population. As for what's next in Michigan, state police are investigating the shooting, while hundreds continue to gather at the city's police department in protest. Okay, next headline. Russia's attacks and atrocities are mounting in Ukraine. Russian forces are gearing up for a new military offensive in eastern Ukraine. As investigators from more than 12 countries said this week that there were clear patterns of human rights violations by Russian forces. This week, President Biden announced that the U.S. is sending another $800 million worth of assistance to Ukraine, including weapons, helicopters, and ammunition. But the people in Ukraine need more than just weapons as the UN estimates 1.4 million people in eastern Ukraine don't have access to fresh water. Experts are still trying to predict the next phase of this war, but so far, it seems like nothing will get Russian President Vladimir Putin to back down. All right, next headline. The new concerns over COVID in this country. Tonight, Philadelphia, the first major city to bring back its indoor mask mandate. The Omicron subvariant is making people mask up again. Philly became the first major city to reinstate its mask mandate, while the CDC extended the federal public transportation mask mandate until May 3rd. But even though there's been a gradual uptick in cases, it's kind of hard to tell how many people have COVID in the U.S. right now. That's because a lot of people are testing at home, and those positive tests aren't getting reported to public health services. Plus, states have scaled back their COVID reporting. So it's hard for public health officials to understand the full scope of this COVID spike. And turning abroad, some countries are doing more than just bringing back mask mandates. In Shanghai, which has a population of 26 million, and that's larger than New York City, Houston, and Chicago combined, residents are basically on total lockdown, and they've had a hard time accessing food and medical care. But despite people being inside all day, cases are still spiking in Shanghai. So as other countries consider adjusting their public health policies for this latest variant, China's showing that a zero-COVID approach doesn't seem to work. Okay, and our final headline. Elon Musk wants Twitter, but he doesn't got it yet. Elon Musk has set his sights on a new project here on Earth. Twitter. And he doesn't just want to help, he wants to take over. Musk announced he was launching what's called a takeover bid for Twitter on Wednesday, offering to buy the whole company for $43 billion. The reason? He's just not that into how Twitter's being run and wants to make bigger changes than just adding an edit button. And when you're the world's richest man, if you don't like how something's being run, you can just try to buy it. 
This announcement comes on the heels of a lot of Musk Twitter back and forth over the past few days, as Musk became the biggest shareholder of the company and then rejected a board seat. As for whether Twitter employees are about to get a new boss, that remains to be seen. The billionaire has indicated that this is his best and final offer, and Twitter said on Thursday that it had received Musk's bid and that their board would determine if this move is in the best interest of Twitter's shareholders. Since the announcement, Twitter stock has skyrocketed. And it's safe to say this IRL takeover drama would make for some great TV. Succession writers, we hope you're watching. This week, we got another inflation report, and surprise, surprise, everything's still super expensive. Prices for consumer goods rose 8.5% in the month of March, the highest jump in 41 years. Month after month of hearing that inflation has hit record highs doesn't exactly ease our nerves or alleviate the pressure on our budgets. So this week, we wanted to get real and understand where do we go from here? For some help, we called up Heather Long, an economics columnist and editorial board member at The Washington Post, to figure out how long is this going to last. Heather, I want to start by asking about this latest inflation report that we got. Was it what we were expecting to see? It was certainly the big flashing red light that we were expecting to see in the sense that 8.5% inflation in the past year. It's the highest since 1981. I was born in 1982, so it's longer than the 40 years that I've been alive since we've seen something like this. And I think what's really concerning is not just that it's a very high number, but when you start digging through what's driving this, it's not just one thing. It's not just the used car prices or even the gas prices. Meat prices are up double digits. Oranges are up 18% from last year. So you can't just clip a few coupons and manage your budget. And the one that I find really worrying is we're starting to see some pretty hefty rent increases, certainly in some parts of the country, like Phoenix or parts of Florida. Obviously, New York City, you always expect to be pretty high. But again, rent is a huge part of most people's budget and particularly young people. How do you get around this? Everywhere you turn, basically the prices are higher right now. I'm definitely feeling that rent increase. Um, I'm curious, you mentioned used cars and food. Like, If our audience had to kind of turn to one, two, three items where they could really gauge inflation, what indicators would you tell them to look to? Yeah, that's a great question. I will say the top three in March was gas prices, number one, that accounted for over half of the increase. I'm, the other two that I'm really keeping an eye on, I would say those food prices, just looking down the list, like bacon, 18%, oranges, 18%, beef, 16%, chicken up 13%, milk, groceries generally up 10% from a year ago. And the third one is really the one we were just talking about, which is those rent increases. Over 20% rent increases are going on in a lot of these places that used to be considered affordable. And the big, big question here is, does it slow down enough that you actually feel like you can get ahead? And for most people right now, the answer is no. Your wages are not keeping up with inflation. The question everyone wants to know, and I just don't know if you have an answer, is how long are we expecting this 
to go on and what could cause inflation to actually taper off? That's been the billion dollar, trillion dollar question. I don't even know what number. Pick your favorite astronomical number is when does this turn around? I would say there's a good chance that that March number, that 8.5% number could be the peak. But the not so good news is I think, and many economists think, that we could easily be sitting here in July, August, September, and that number is still really what I would call uncomfortably high. So even if it falls a little bit to 5 or 6%, that's still not making you feel great. So that's where the alarm bells are kind of continue to go off here. I think there's sort of two stories going on here that's driving this from like a big picture conceptual level. Number one is people just went out and bought a ton of stuff during the pandemic. And at the same time, we had these, as everyone's been reading about, I'm sure everyone listening has a story of these supply chain crises where you went to order something online. They were like, sorry, it's going to be three months and three months turns into four months, turns into five months. So I've been calling this the era of scarcity. And as Americans, we're just not used to that. And it's the same thing in housing. Everybody has a crazy housing story right now. I personally was at an open house in the Washington, D.C. area recently and a hundred people were at this open house. Oh my God. And I actually just for curiosity called the realtor after and I was <laughs> like, how many bids did you get? You know, 13 bids. And obviously it went to one person, you know, one yeah. person wins. And you have to ask yourself what happened to the other 12 people, let alone the other 99 people who walk through this home. Like even if you're willing to pay these astronomical prices, you can't always get it right now. I wanted to check in on another indicator of economic health in this country, which is unemployment and the job market. And as far as I can tell, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, that's looking pretty healthy. There are almost two jobs for every unemployed person, so two job openings. Now, that doesn't mean that the unemployed person is sitting in the right part of the country. You know, this job could be in the Midwest and this person's in North Carolina, or they might not have the right skills for the job opening. but. That's where you hear some politicians and policymakers talk about this. This is such a hot labor market and job market. It's so tight. They like to use the word tight that we've never seen before. They're talking about the power is really in the hands of workers right now. And that's why you're seeing this massive push for unionization at Starbucks and even that one Amazon warehouse in the New York City area that was able to vote to unionize. A lot of this is happening because companies desperately need workers and there aren't enough workers right now. And does the fact that there is low unemployment contribute to higher inflation? Like, what's the relationship between the two of them? Yeah, so there was a lot of concern that we're seeing pretty strong wage increases. And it used to be that you'd always see wage increases when people would jump jobs. So if you leave a job, you get recruited to go somewhere else, usually you're going to go somewhere else where they're paying you a little bit more. But what's happening now is both people who are staying and who are leaving jobs are getting pretty good wage increases. However, it's important to remember that wage growth in the past year is 5.6%. So that's, that's high. It's a lot, much higher than we've seen in years. But that number, 5.6, is clearly lower than inflation, which is 8.5%. So that's where you're sort of seeing that Yes, wages are going up, but this is not the main contributing factor to what's driving the rise in prices right now. 
some of us, we've heard people using what I'll call the R word, which is recession. And I'm curious from your perspective, what is worrying people? What are the potential signals of a recession? And what about our current economic landscape has people concerned? Yes, definitely recession risks are rising. And that is never a comfortable place to be. It's not inevitable that the economy is going to fall down. But we're in this point where a lot of the supports are off and a lot more of these headwinds, if you will, are picking up. The general feeling now is there's about a 30% chance of recession. So that's not inevitable. There's a 70% chance of no recession, but that's definitely a lot higher. Like if we had had this conversation in January, people probably would have been saying the recession risk is 10 or 15%. So basically we've doubled. The optimists will tell you, no, 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 there's not going to be a recession. And here's why. Because we have an unusual amount of cash in the economy right now. What do I mean by that? A lot of people were able to save some money during the pandemic, or they got those stimulus checks or unemployment payments. And so bank accounts are really, really fat right now. That doesn't mean everybody's doing well, but by and large, there's trillions more dollars in savings between people being able to save rising stock market in the last two years and rising home prices. So people kind of have a little bit of extra money on hand. Same thing with businesses. They've been doing very well recently. And lastly, the federal government sent out a lot of not just stimulus checks, but a lot of money to state and local governments and to hospitals and to education facilities. And so there's a lot of money in those areas as well, which is very unusual. So you put all that together and people, even with these high prices so far, continue to spend. Mm -hmm. You know, there were 100 people at that open house. Like, why are so many people at an open house when that house was clearly overvalued? (laughs) Or like the rent. And you're like, who is paying these price? Well, somebody is paying this price right now. Somebody's paying. I've learned that recently. Somebody's paying. I'm like, tell me who. Tell me who. Yes, I would like to meet them and, and understand their finances. So that's kind of the rosy picture. So what's the downside? Well, it really boils down to this inflation story that we've been talking about. In order to get inflation under control, there's one big remedy that you pull out, and that is this Federal Reserve raising the interest rates. They already did it once in March. They're going to definitely do it again in May, and they have plans to do it multiple more times by the end of the year. And so what does that mean? So basically, they're making it more expensive to borrow money to start a business or buy a home or buy a car or take out a credit card loan. And the idea is to stop people from spending. And so the Federal Reserve is saying, hey, it's okay. We're going to tap the brakes a little bit here. But it's not, you know, we can still manage this because we've got still a lot of demand and all that cash in the economy. So we're not going to totally choke it. And the negative side to that is, The Fed, if you're being generous, has successfully succeeded with that policy, that remedy, like three times in the last 50 years. They have unsuccessfully done this eight times Mm. in the last 50 or so years. So eight times they've raised interest rates and we've ended up in a recession. And so that's why you see people saying, you know, this is going to be really tricky. It's very hard to do. My last question for you is just, What would you tell our audience, which is mainly female millennials who, you know, the last recession they experienced, they might have been in college trying to get their first job. They weren't as established financially. 
And now a lot of them are first-time homebuyers, starting families. Like, what would you tell them to keep in mind over the next few months? It's a great question. The number one advice is to ask for a raise now. You know, you still have a lot of power right now, either asking your current company for that raise or seeking other jobs. I know I personally have been called about other job offers. I'm sure a lot of listeners on this podcast have. So if you're sort of on the fence, like, should I do it now or six months from now? Six months from now, even if we're not in a recession, the economy is probably going to be a little bit slower. So take advantage of this hot job market that we're in right now. Financial-wise, it's always a good idea to pay down debts, but it's particularly a good idea to pay down like any credit card debts that you have. So anything where as those interest rates rise, your borrowing costs would rise, and credit card debt is, is a key example of that. If you've got some sitting around, take some of that extra cash and, uh, and consider paying down, down your debts. For most people, you've hopefully already refinanced or locked in your mortgage. But I think the other thing that women also make mistakes on, and I'll admit I'm a little bit like this too, is when we start to see more than likely we may see some turbulence in the stock market in the coming months. And it's hard, you know, it makes you want to take your money out. So I would just say, particularly if you're somebody in your 20s or 30s, I'm 40 and I'm you know, trying to remind myself, don't look at it. Don't open your investment portfolio, your 401k or these sorts of things. If the market does start to go down, just remember that that money is supposed to be for the next 30 to 40 years, you know, when you need it much later in life. So even if you invested money, I, I did an analysis recently on this, even if you invested money at like the worst possible time, you always make your money back in about 13 years. Usually it's a lot sooner than that, but it just sort of reminds you to keep that long-term thinking in sight. Heather, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks a lot, Alex. Since Florida passed its controversial Don't Say Gay Bill last month, more than a dozen other states have introduced or are considering their own versions. Republicans in Alabama, Louisiana, Ohio, and Texas are considering copycat legislation that would limit discussions of gender and sexuality in schools. Some proposed bills would even ban books related to sex and sexual activity. While other states like Iowa would require parents to state in writing that they'd like their children to be a part of any instruction relating to gender identity. This wave of anti-LGBTQ legislation has been met with intense criticism from Hollywood. We're gonna have a great night uh, tonight and for you people in Florida, we're gonna have a gay night. Gay, gay, gay. To corporate America. Corporations like Disney are speaking out against the governor's support of the bill, but that hasn't stopped politicians from moving ahead. It's a little bit complicated to know what is actually in the minds and the intention of the legislators, but we can tell what the outcome of this legislation is, and that is to create fear among educators, among young people, and among families and parents to talk about who they are as LGBTQ people and to censor educators and students on talking about issues, and in some cases, even the existence of LGBTQ people. That's Amit Paley, the CEO of The Trevor Project, 
which is the world's largest crisis intervention organization for the LGBTQ community. And he told us, it's not hard to read between the lines and see how these bills would impact the day-to-day lives of students. What we are afraid of is that schools and teachers are going to interpret this legislation to say, you can no longer have GSAs, which are safe spaces for LGBTQ people to come together. You can't create a school project that talks about your family if your family includes two moms or two dads. You can't write essays or have classroom discussions where you talk about what it means for you to be an LGBTQ person. If the most powerful people in your state are trying to ban and censor teachers and students from talking about who you are and your identity or the identity of your parents, that's a really hurtful and scary thing for many young people. Paley said there's no question that open discussions about gender and sexual identity have a positive impact on LGBTQ plus youth, and erasing those discussions from classrooms could directly impact their health and safety. We know from our research and from the young people we hear from every day on our crisis services that LGBTQ youth suicide is a major public health crisis. 42% of LGBTQ young people seriously consider suicide every year in the United States, and more than half of transgender and non-binary young people seriously consider suicide. And that's not because there is something inherent about LGBTQ people that makes them more likely to consider suicide. It is because of the discrimination and rejection and stigma that LGBTQ people face every day. When we see from young people that they experience affirmation and acceptance and love, it decreases their risk of suicide. So when we specifically look at curriculum in schools, we saw in our research that LGBTQ young people who learned about LGBTQ issues or people in class had a 23% lower odds of reporting suicide attempts. That's a huge, huge figure. Just having that curriculum reduces the risk of suicide. Same for LGBTQ affirming spaces. They dramatically reduce the risk of suicide. Paley and his colleagues at The Trevor Project have spoken to a lot of LGBTQ plus young people recently. And it's safe to say a lot of students are feeling really scared right now. But Paley told us it's important to remember that we can all play a role in creating safe and supportive environments for young people outside of the classroom. Sometimes people think that there's a secret trick or a magic formula to creating safe spaces and feelings of acceptance and love. But it really is as easy as saying to your children and saying to people around you that we accept people for who they are. There's nothing wrong with being an LGBTQ person and that we will love you and treat you the same way that we would want to be treated ourselves and the same way that we treat anyone else. When children see parents and family members using language like that, that makes young people feel more comfortable being who they are and leads to better mental health and overall better outcomes for young people. If you know someone who could use a little extra support right now, The Trevor Project has more info at thetrevorproject.org and their crisis management hotline is available 24-7. We'll leave a link to their resources in our show notes. Do you remember the first time you stepped foot in an Abercrombie store? Flashing lights, shirtless guys. Hey, Carpenter, do you have the key? Nah, bro. I think Dutch has it. 
And that smell. It smells to me just like really, really overpowering cologne. It is something where like you smell it and you're like, am I in a mall? <laughs> That's Allison Clayman, the director of a documentary that drops on Netflix next week that chronicles the rise and fall of Abercrombie. And for the record, that smell was actually a cologne called Fierce. Clayman told us, whether thinking about Abercrombie makes you think of popped collars, layered tank tops, or even the mean girls in high school, it makes you think of something. And that's a testament to how significant the brand was in our culture during the 2000s. Whenever I talk to people about Abercrombie and Fitch today, immediately you get some kind of personal story that relates to their like identity formation, you know, where they shopped, where they grew up, their relationship with their social hierarchy at school, their body, how much money their family had. Like Abercrombie just touches on so much of our insecurities. Abercrombie became this status symbol, in part because it sold this all-American aspirational lifestyle. From the cool kids wearing the clothes and working at the store to the semi-naked guys on the shopping bags. But that lifestyle that Abercrombie was selling wasn't actually something that most Americans related to. Here's Nikki Oganaki, the digital director at Harper's Bazaar. Abercrombie's visuals definitely had a major impact on how women and men of that time understood and related to their bodies. Everyone who owned Abercrombie was a part of the cool club, and everyone who didn't was not. Like, the girls who got it got it, and the girls who didn't didn't. Whether you couldn't afford Abercrombie or you weren't rich and white and chiseled and beautiful, Abercrombie really created this sort of environment that was about being exclusionary and about fitting in rather than being welcoming and inclusive of all types of people. And it turns out that Abercrombie tried to sell their exclusive lifestyle by using discriminatory and illegal business practices. Clayman's documentary revealed that store managers had to rank their employees by how cool they were and reduce the shifts and visibility of employees of color in their stores. The people at the top were really enforcing on their store workers, the young people saying, you know, you can't have too many people who aren't white. This person isn't hot enough. This person isn't cool enough. And obviously that is illegal and it's also immoral. The idea that when you're like running a store or working in a store, it's your first job experience or within the realm of like one of your first jobs, you're a young person. The job is to sell clothes and fold clothes. The truth is that the problem was not located in the young people. The problem was the sort of adults in the room coming from the corporate office in Ohio would descend upon them and sort of tell them that they needed to have more white people in the stores. Problems that we still have today, things we can recognize, and we talk about structural racism or institutional racism, systemic racism. And it's like, let me show you a very concrete example of how it worked at this company. Former employees actually sued the brand for discrimination and were awarded a nearly $50 million settlement in 2004, which was basically the beginning of the end for the company. As Abercrombie had public controversy after public controversy, and as mall culture in general started to die, the brand's financials began to suffer. And the CEO who had spearheaded all those bad practices stepped down in 2014. 
But now, Abercrombie is apparently making a fashionably late comeback and is trying to reach new Gen Z customers who might not be aware of its preppy popped collar history. It's clear that they are now going the complete opposite direction in terms of their advertising. If you look at their social media, especially their Instagram, they talk about community, they talk about disabilities, they talk about being a part of the LGBTQ AI plus community. It really is about bringing people in rather than keeping people out. But whether the brand can actually leave the old Abercrombie in the past is still TBD. I think that is another really interesting part of this story. Whether that means they've fully reckoned with their past, I think it's important to differentiate between corporate spin and how things really are run at a company. I mean, they can conveniently talk about this whole past as being under this one CEO who left in 2014, 2015. But the truth is, it takes a lot more than one guy who deserves a lot of criticism for what he created, but it takes a lot more than one guy to do what was done at Abercrombie. There wasn't really like a cleaning house of everyone who worked under him. And, you know, things kind of didn't change until the culture changed and it became smart business to actually have body positivity, inclusivity. And so I definitely applaud where they are now, but I feel like it's important to really look at the story for for what it is and not just corporate kind of spin. If you want to learn more and get a strong whiff of nostalgia, check out White Hot, The Rise and Fall of Abercrombie and Fitch on Netflix, starting on April 19th. There could be a few surprises for you. It's a kind of fun Easter egg. It's really small, you know, if you watch on your phones, but maybe you'll see if you're watching on a big screen. But we hid a fierce bottle in the background of every single interview in the documentary. So if you, you know, really want to look closely, you can find the fierce bottle. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our producer, Will Livingston, and our associate producer, Blake Lou Merwin. We had additional help this week from Sajine Coriellis. This episode was engineered by Ellie McAfee-Hahn and Andrew Calloway. And the Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, check out the other podcasts from the Skim. 9 to 5-ish is where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. And Pop Cultured is our weekly deep dive into the culture stories you can't stop thinking about. Follow 9to5ish and Pop Cultured wherever you're already listening to us.